0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hello, you? here's Linda from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori our over at The Post. I'm-
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 24th. Today, Britney Spears speaks out, the hope of an experimental brain surgery and the end of a newspaper in Hong Kong.
2: So yesterday afternoon in Los Angeles, Britney Spears, the pop singer, uh, participated in a court hearing about her conservatorship, this uh, this legal arrangement that she's been in since 2008, so 13 years now. There have been a lot of hearings over the last several years about this, but this particular hearing was special because um, Britney requested to speak on her own behalf. Usually in these hearings, it's you know lawyers talking to lawyers or to a judge, but yesterday, Britney spoke for herself in the court. After I've lied and told the whole world I'm okay and I'm happy, it's a lie. I thought I just, maybe if I said that enough, maybe I might become happy because I've been in denial. I've been in shock. I am traumatized. You know, fake it till you make it. But now I'm telling you the truth, okay? I'm not happy. I can't sleep. I'm so angry. It's insane. And I'm depressed. I cry every day. This was the first time that the public has had any access to her statements to the court. So it was very revealing. It was a, you know, really emotional, very, very tense kind of yesterday. Ashley Fetters reports on pop
0: culture for The Post. She talked to Post Reports producer Jordan Murray Smith.
1: So, Ashley, what is a conservatorship exactly?
2: A conservatorship is an arrangement that places a, a vulnerable adult under another person's supervision to prevent them from being taken advantage of, in theory. It can involve the vulnerable person really surrendering a lot of control of their finances and a lot of their daily life. And traditionally, these exist for like the very old, kind of senile adult population who might be distinctly in danger of, of that kind of thing, of being taken advantage of. But of course what a lot of fans and general observers have have argued over the years is you know Britney Spears is she's 39 years old she's a successful musician she's demonstrated a lot more capability and functionality than a lot of people who end up under conservatorships so to a lot of people that suggested the possibility that there might be might be something something off about this whole situation
1: So how has Britney Spears's life been controlled by the conservatorship and
2: Who is in control of that conservatorship? Okay, so who's in control of the conservatorship? When the situation came to be in 2008, it was understood to be temporary at the time. And then, of course, over time, became permanent at some point along the way. At first, the conservator of both her person and her finances was her father, Jamie Spears. Uh, They were estranged at the time. They've been known to have kind of a tense, strained relationship for most of Britney's adult life. A key thing to understand here is that, yeah, Brittany, Brittany and the people closest to her have stayed very quiet about this for the last 12, 13 years. But yesterday with Brittany speaking for herself in this virtual courtroom for the first time for that the public could hear, observers just learned a lot of specifics for the first time. She described being forced to go to therapy twice, even three times a week. Sometimes with a therapist, she described as abusive. She said that she wasn't allowed to go on vacation if she hadn't fulfilled the therapy requirement. She said, you know, they weren't—they wouldn't let me go on my vacation to Maui unless I went to therapy uh, as many times as they prescribed. Um, she also described um, going to therapy in places that were very exposed, where paparazzi and the public could see her coming and going, um, despite her having requested to do therapy sessions at her home instead. She alleged that prescription drugs were sort of forced on her by her conservators. Ones that made her feel like she was drunk all the time, made her behave kind of erratically. Um, she also, and and this is the thing that I think has really disturbed a lot of people, gotten under this under the skin of a lot of people in the last twenty four hours. She also mentioned that she would like to have her IUD removed, her birth control device, and have another baby, but her conservators won't let her go to the doctor to undergo that procedure. Um, so she described, you know, that that environment as abusive overall, and asked that her conservatorship be terminated. What is the Free Britney movement? So the Free Britney movement um, popped up right around the same time as the details of the conservatorship reached the public. You know, In in 2008, she ends up under this conservatorship. And then in 2009, you start to see this Free Britney hashtag and the net website pops up. It's just it's a movement of fans who you know saw this happen and said something seems strange about this, about this situation, about this kind of predicament that she's in. And of course, what I think has fed that over the last 13 years is that Britney and the people closest to her have remained pretty quiet about the conservatorship and the details of it. There are details that have that have leaked out <laughs> or, you know, kind of the occasional comment here and there that, that gives a, a glimpse behind the veil of this conservatorship. You know, it, it's and generally those details add up to Brittany's not happy with this situation. And essentially what we saw in court yesterday was generally confirmed uh, the, the, the suspicion that, that a lot of these fans have had for a long time. And of course, you know the the response was was overwhelming yesterday. I, I do think that a lot of folks who have have come and gravitated toward the free Britney movement are people who didn't come here through the the front door of being a Britney fan, but came here through the side door of you know, having experienced conservatorship abuse or the misuse of this legal arrangement, and kind of came to this movement through you know caring about that primarily. So for a lot of folks, this represented not just a victory for Britney, but a victory against conservatorships and, you know, just a a raising of awareness around the potential for abuse of this arrangement. I'm kind of curious about what's going to happen next. I think we're all curious about what is going to happen next here. Conservatorships are known to be really difficult to get out of. Um, I think they're designed that way for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, the fact that she has now expressed and requested that she wants uh, the the conservatorship to be terminated, that should at least bring up the topic for discussion. It was not on the table before, and now it is on the table. Given the way this, this case has been handled in the past, I would expect this is, I want to emphasize this is my personal prediction, my Ashley Fetters personal prediction, is um, that this will be handled in a way that, that is sort of slow and careful and not, not dramatic or immediate. A lot of this case has been handled by the judge, Brenda Penny, in a way that, that feels very measured. Um, so I would not expect, you know, the, the news next week to be Britney is, <laughs> Britney is back in control. You know, I, I, would, not, I would not hold my breath for that. Um, but I do think that, you know, it is on the table now. It's something they can discuss, you know, is this conservatorship really necessary anymore? Ashley Fetters reports on pop
0: culture for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith.
1: Um, And you are recording?
3: Yeah, still recording.
1: Awesome. Okay. Who are you and what do you do?
3: Uh, I'm Lenny Bernstein, and I cover health and medicine for The Post. Lenny
0: Bernstein talked to our executive producer, Maggie Penman, about an experimental brain surgery to treat substance use disorders. And Lenny's story started with this one guy.
3: Jared Buckholter is the first and only person in the United States to have his addiction to drugs reversed by brain surgery, a particular kind of brain surgery in which a deep brain stimulator is installed. They had to drill two holes in his skull. They have to implant electrodes in two parts of his brain called the nucleus accumbens one on either side.
0: Stimulating this part of the brain appears to affect other parts of the brain involved in decision-making and curbing impulsivity. And scientists have found that it might reverse physical changes to the brain caused by years of drug use. Jared is 35 years old, and he struggled with severe substance use disorder for more than half his life. Now, after this brain surgery, he's been sober for more than 600 days.
1: So, You spend a lot of time with Jared reporting this story. What does he say this feels like? Does he not have the desire to do drugs anymore? Or does he just have more impulse control? Or what what does this therapy actually do?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear him describe this because he is trying to describe something that literally no one else has ever felt. His cravings are greatly reduced. So that is the first and probably most important thing. He desperately wanted to get better, but the cravings had such a hold on him that he literally could not focus on anything else.
4: Like anything outside of getting that drug was was an afterthought.
3: So his cravings are greatly reduced. That allows him to focus on other things. He still feels depression. He still feels anxiety. But the brain stimulation has reduced the drug's hold on him to the extent that he actually can devote some energy and some attention to getting better.
1: I want to talk a little bit about what Jared's life was like before this surgery. What were his relationships like? What was his health like? Did he have a job? Could he maintain friendships? What, what was his life like?
3: For the better part of 20 years, he cycled in and out of jobs, uh, never maintaining one for very long. Uh, he had no true friends uh, other than other drug users, and they were essentially in the same situation he was. He did have some girlfriends, but he... Um, inevitably uh, would steal from them.
4: There was nothing in my life that that I hadn't screwed up by that time because of my addiction. I, I would steal off of anybody, you know, anybody and everybody.
3: His parents stayed in his life for the better part of these two decades, but eventually they, too, had to sort of distance themselves from him. He... um was stealing thousands and thousands of dollars from them and from their friends and from people he knew. And his father was pretty convinced that he was either going to end up dead or in jail. Um, and he said, you know, he the only thing he was praying every day was that Jared wouldn't hurt somebody, some innocent person, uh, you know, by driving uh, under the influence of drugs.
1: This experimental surgery, on the one hand, sounds like a miracle. And on the other hand, sounds sort of dystopian, what are the moral and ethical questions around the surgery? And is that something that was discussed before it was performed?
3: The questions of uh, risk and reward were very seriously discussed. Uh, When he was first approached, he didn't want to do it. And his parents were absolutely dead set against him doing it. Gradually over time, Jared and... To a lesser extent, his parents uh, became convinced that while there was some risk to brain surgery, the path that he was on was far riskier than that. Uh, He was in the end stages of his addiction, and really everything else that exists out there had not worked, and his future was imminent overdose and death. He had overdosed numerous times already. And Uh, he was really looking at dying uh, sooner or later from a drug overdose.
1: There are obviously a lot of interrelated problems that come along with substance use disorder. And it feels like this surgery sort of treats one part of it. Would you agree with that? Is that something that the doctors who perform this surgery would agree with?
3: Yeah. If you define that one part as reducing the cravings, reducing impulsivity, improving judgment, then that's what the surgery does. It does not cure drug addiction. It allows the person enough space in their life to use the other methods of addressing substance use disorder. It is not in and of itself a cure.
4: You know, you can take the craving aspect out of it. You can you can make me feel a little bit better, but I have, I have a living problem, and that's the, the biggest thing. That's like I I didn't know how to live a normal life outside of using drugs. You know, I didn't know what a meaning meaningful friendship was. You know, I didn't know how to be a, a good son. I didn't know how to be a reliable employee. You know, I, I didn't do well with authority. And, and I like I still struggle with those things.
3: Now, I will say, in Jared's case, he did not relapse even a single time. And that was very unexpected. The, the doctors uh, fully expected that in the 600-plus days since he's had the surgery, he would relapse once or twice and that the treatment team would be called upon to get him back off drugs. That never happened. And it is an open question, why? Was it because Jared was the perfect candidate and that, you know, he was so determined even before the surgery to get off drugs that uh, he has never touched them again? Or is it something about the surgery or is it something about the follow-up treatment? Um, because only two people have ever had this and only one has succeeded, we don't know. So there's no way to compare him to anyone else. If this is proven safe and they go on to a much larger trial, they'll then be able to acquire data and compare Jared and other people and try to isolate some of those questions and, and um, develop answers to them.
1: When you talk to the doctors who perform this surgery, what, what are their
3: hopes for it? So they know that a procedure that involves cutting people's heads open and and putting electrodes in people's brains, that is a a niche operation. It always will be a niche operation for that small group of the most severely affected. What they want to do is accomplish the same thing with non-invasive procedures. And there are two that they're already studying. Uh, One of them is um, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's the use of powerful magnets that are placed against uh, the head for short periods of time. And the other is focused ultrasound, similar procedure only using ultrasound that they can point at different parts of the brain. Um, Transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation already is being used in depression. So what they're hoping to do is to gather enough information from these surgeries that they then can transition to a non-invasive form of the same idea. Um, I should mention that the stimulator that's inside Jared is not just stimulating his brain, it's also recording information that they will be using along with his own subjective evaluation and with MRI data to help try to refine this procedure.
1: Can you talk a bit about the other person who got this surgery? Um, why, why wasn't it successful for them?
3: I never met the person. I don't know the person's name. I just know it's a guy uh, who was younger than Jared and who asked within a few months to have the stimulator removed. So I'm reliant on the doctors. And what they said was that he soon afterwards stopped Participating in meetings, stopped going to counseling, um, stopped going to Narcotics Anonymous, and essentially didn't engage. That's the word that was used over and over again with us didn't engage in the follow up process. And again, because he's a universe of one person, we don't know what happened.
1: It sounds like also Jared has an incredible amount uh, going for him. He has It sounds like the support of his parents, he's middle class. It's possible he might be the outlier in this situation.
3: Right. He also uh, was connected shortly after the surgery to a sober living house. And so a whole bunch of people welcomed him there. And not just into the house, but they also gave him a job eventually when he was ready for it uh, as a peer counselor there. And he says that those people have helped him uh, as much as the surgery helped him because they're teaching him the second part of this journey, how to live a normal life, how to be a good friend, how to get to work on time, uh, how to open a bank account. So the cocoon of support around Jared is very strong. He also has this treatment team at the hospital. Psychiatrists, neuropsychiatrists, they're all helping him along. Hmm.
1: It really strikes me listening to you talk about how much support he still has, how incredibly overwhelming substance use disorder can be, and how even a brain surgery can't Really fix it. It like it just feels like there's no silver bullet. At least right now,
3: no, there's no silver bullet, and um, this thing is incredibly powerful because I know how much Jared wanted to get better. You it, you can tell just talking to him how hard he tried over those years. And it was not possible. It was just not possible for him. He couldn't beat it. I've been covering opioids for years and years, and um, I know how bad it can be. And I know I've talked to many, many families who've lost people to overdoses. I've talked to people who overdosed. I came away with a renewed respect for how difficult and all-encompassing this can be. And then I also came away with um, a real appreciation for people who are out there trying to develop new techniques. Um, Yes, we have buprenorphine, and yes, if we were to expand medically-assisted treatment dramatically, we could really have an impact on the um, drug epidemic in the United States. But there's still people who are not going to respond to that, lots of people. It's pretty amazing to think that we might be able to approach this problem technologically, medically. That was a whole new window for me.
0: Lenny Bernstein is a health and science reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Maggie Penman. And now, one more thing from Hong Kong Bureau Chief Shabani Matani.
5: This week, Apple Daily, one of the most important newspapers here in Hong Kong, seized operations. The newspaper was a staunch supporter of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, and also a very critical voice against the Chinese Communist Party. In its 26 years of existence, uh, Apple Daily has not held back anything, it has not pulled punches, it's basically been one of the few voices that has really expressed explicit support for the pro-democracy movement, done critical coverage of the government, investigated the Hong Kong police, and become known really for its fearless coverage of Hong Kong and the events here. For many people, it's it's more than just a newspaper, but really the only outlet that they can find a voice for themselves. After Beijing passed a new national security law here, basically erasing street protests, changing electoral rules, jailing key activists and politicians and, and protest leaders and community leaders, the simple act of reading Apple Daily became itself a form of protest, itself a way for people to have hope and have hope that, you know, their voice and their views were still being publicly acknowledged and, you know, publicly Available. The newspaper seized operations after a series of events uh, over the past few days that happened very quickly last week. Five executives from Apple Daily were arrested, including three of its top editors. That led to a series of events where the government froze its assets saying that those were illegally gotten gains and stopped all banks in Hong Kong from working with Apple Daily. That meant that Apple Daily couldn't pay its vendors, it couldn't pay staff, it has some thousand staff here. And so the parent company of Apple Daily decided that they had no choice but to seize operations and print the last copy of the newspaper this morning, Thursday morning here in Hong Kong. That was a very emotional event for Hong Kong people Dozens of supporters, I think the crowd grew as big as over 100 at one point, gathered outside the newspaper's offices. Some laid flowers, others brought their children, some were posting messages of support. There was really heavy rain last night here in Hong Kong. It was really grim weather and and some people were, were weeping while they were standing outside inside there was also a really emotional scene at, at the newsroom as journalists prepared the last copy of the of the newspaper, the last print edition that they will ever publish. The staff were cheering for each other, thanking supporters outside. At the end, there were other journalists allowed to go in and, and document the last moments of, of Apple Daily, and some of the editors were crying. Many of them had, had worked there since the paper began. The Hong Kong government has tried to say that the closure of Apple Daily was not about press freedom. It was not about journalism, but it was specifically about conspiracy, that there was a group of journalists and executives at Apple Daily that were conspiring to collude with foreign forces. These are one of the four crimes under the new national security law, and collusion with foreign forces essentially means working with countries like the US or the UK to, quote-unquote, bring down Hong Kong or threaten national security. Since the national security law has been put in place, the government has really been trying to push a narrative that the protests that we saw in 2019 and 2020 until the pandemic hit were not organic. They were not an expression of the will of the Hong Kong people, but they were actually organized by meddling foreign forces, by people who wanted to destabilize Hong Kong and hurt Hong Kong. That narrative um, doesn't hold water from what we've seen and what we know, but it's one that the Hong Kong government has been working to prove. Hong Kong's media environment has already changed dramatically in the past year. We see shows disappearing, we see entire teams and newsrooms disappearing. We see constant fear among international journalists here that they will be denied visas and and sort of forced out. It is impossible to say that the media is operating here as promised under Hong Kong's constitution where the right to a free press is meant to be guaranteed. Shibani Matani is the Hong Kong bureau
0: chief for the Post, and Metalkov produced this story. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. We are wrapping up our two-week subscription drive, and I just want to thank all of the listeners who've decided to become post-subscribers in the past few days, the past few months, or even the past few years. There are people like Jake and Sophie who listen to the podcast religiously. There's Kent's dad, David, who finds joy in cicadas. James and his Persian pup from the park and Susan from The Post Report's Facebook group. All people who support our podcast by subscribing to The Washington Post while also getting access to so much excellent journalism every day. You can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. That is less than a dollar a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Or click the link in today's show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
5: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm
1: the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses.